There are some sections of scripture that stand out as especially powerful and packed with meaning. Romans chapter 8 is one of those sections. Filled with truth after truth and stuff chock full of grace, hope, and freedom in Christ, our teachers look forward to delving into this chapter with you. Join us as we learn about how there is no condemnation or accusation for those who follow Jesus. Learn how the Spirit and Jesus both pray for us. Listen to how our suffering is nothing compared to what God eventually has in store for us. Learn about how there is nothing in all this world that is powerful enough to ever separate us from the love of Christ. Live in it with us this month and expect your life to be changed. So the book of Romans, which we've been in for the last month, is actually a letter. And it was written from the Apostle Paul to a group of ragtag, first century, persecuted, oppressed Christians in Rome. And many say that in this letter, Paul is writing one of the most complete and profound treatises on the gospel of Jesus Christ ever written. So I echo Jeff's encouragement to you to read chapters 1 through 7 to, you know, immerse yourself with us over this last month like you did, we hope, in chapter 8 and then continue reading. Uh, Romans is an incredible letter And in the first seven chapters, Paul is just building and building and building on truth after truth after truth after truth about who Jesus is and how the world has changed because of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then Paul gets to chapter 8, the pinnacle of this letter. And I know if you've been in here, you've already heard Eric And Ed and Julie teach their way through the first three sections of chapter 8. And I want you to know that the four of us have met together and been studying and thinking and praying about this teaching series since last summer. And we're so excited about what we've been able to bring to you, really what God's been able to bring to you from this incredible chapter. If you have not been able to join us over these last three weeks, I encourage you to go online to our website and watch the subsequent teachings because they're incredibly powerful. I, however, this morning have the privilege of bringing you the last eight verses of Romans chapter eight. And I have to say, I maybe have never been more excited to teach a piece of scripture than I am this morning. And I'm using, we've all used something called the New Living Translation, which is just a a different translation of the Bible than what we normally teach from, which is the New International Version. Um, We found it was just a little bit more readable. And so uh, if you're following along uh, in your own Bibles and wonder why this sounds different, that's why. So let's dig in. Paul starts this section of Romans chapter 8 this way. Verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Paul's talking about all he has written before, maybe in chapters 1 through 7, maybe just in chapter 8, but he's really just asking, what more can I say? 
And he's alluding to this idea that there's really nothing more that he can say. He said it all, and then he says a lot more. It reminds me of giving advice to my kids when they were little, and I would just bring the heat, and then I would say, and that's all I have to say about that, and I'd walk away. And then two seconds later, I'd be back in, and I'd say, now just one more thing. Here's the good stuff. That's exactly what Paul's doing. And so after asking, what more can I say? Paul asks five incredible, life-changing questions. And we're going to walk our way through each one of them. The first one is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to understand that if Paul had simply asked this group of first century persecuted Christians, who is against us? The answer would have been, everyone, Paul. Everyone is against us. But that's not the point of this question. The first part of this question is where the power is. Paul says, if God is for us, or rather, since God is for us, then because this is true, who cares who else is against us? The God of the universe is for us. And you have to understand how much this meant to this little band of people back then. He's saying if God is for us, it's irrelevant who is against us. If you this morning are in the middle of a divorce, God is for you. I hate to break it to you, but God is also for your ex-wife or ex-husband or the spouse you're in the middle of a divorce with. If you are sick and you don't know how to proceed with treatment or treatment is painful and difficult and you're scared, God is for you. If your parents fight all the time, God is for you. If you walk in this morning and you feel like you have no friends at all, God is for you. If you've never, ever, ever been to church and you walked in those doors this morning terrified of what you were going to encounter, God is for you. If you sinned a thousand times between the second you woke up this morning and the second you walked in these doors, God is for you. If you're not even sure you believe in God, God is for you. If it feels like you are God's enemy, God is for you. Even if this whole dang world feels like it is against you, the truth is the deepest truth is God is for you. God is not your enemy. God is not your enemy. God is not your enemy. Paul's next question, his second question of the five, flows right out of this first one. And he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So he's talking about the father and the son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? 
Again, the power is in the first part of this question. And what Paul's doing is he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And he's saying, since God has already given us the costliest gift, the gift of himself broken on a cross to make us whole, why then would we think that God is going to fail to give us everything else we need? God is provider. This is simply who God is. And some of us are in situations where we are unsure about this truth, about God being our provider. We're unsure this morning about whether or not God will come through for us. And I believe that Paul is saying to you through this gospel message, look at what God has already provided for you. The most important and costly thing God could give. How much more then can you trust him to be your provider? And this has been such a hard thing for me to learn. Over and over and over again, God has provided. Not always with what I want, but always with what I need. Not always in my timing. In fact, I guess I could say never, ever, ever in my timing. But always in just the right time. And over and over again, I forget this. And I think to myself, mostly in the middle of the night when I'm up worrying, I know what I'll do. I'll just get my grimy little hands on the situation and I'll bend it to go my way. That'll be great, won't it, God? And I always ruin it. Always. And even then, God is patient and he's kind to me. And he unwinds the knot that I have created. And he makes provision for me. When you doubt that God is your provider, look at the cross. When you doubt that God will come through for you, look at the cross. The cross stands as a sign, a reminder of God's never-failing generosity. Paul continues. Third question. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Now, what Paul's done here is he's moved into the courtroom. The word accuse means to charge with a crime. This is the pointing of the finger. The pointing of the finger that declares you, you, you are guilty. You're guilty. And Paul asks, who dares point the finger of accusation at those who belong to God through Christ? And then he answers his own question, and he says, no one. Who dares point the finger of accusation at those who belong to Christ? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. 
In a courtroom, it's the prosecutor who accuses. The prosecutor is the one who points the finger and says you're guilty. But the problem for the poor prosecutor in Paul's imaginary, imaginary courtroom is that the judge who would rule on the guilt of the accused has already justified the one the prosecutor is accusing. The judge has already declared us not guilty. Not because we aren't actually guilty. We are. We all are guilty. That's not why we're declared not guilty. We're declared not guilty because the judge himself has already given us right standing with himself. This is what it means to be justified. We are given the judge's perfect record in place of our own guilty one. So then if the one and only true judge has declared and provided our declaration of innocence, Paul is saying, who dares accuse us? Isn't that great wording? Don't you love the phrase, how dare you? I kind of like that. I'm hoping to use that over the Thanksgiving holiday. (laughs) I'm going to wait. I'm going to build up. And in the right moment, I'm simply going to say, how dare you? How freeing would it be in your life If you no longer worried about who points their finger at you and accuses you of this or that. Now, if we do something wrong, of course we accept blame and we ask for forgiveness and we do everything in our power to make things right. But I don't think that's the kind of accusation Paul's talking about here. I think Paul is referring to the deep, shame-filled accusation that so many of us expect from God and so many of us fear. The accusation from God that sounds something like this, I see you for who you really are. I see everything about you. I see your faults. I see your sin. I see your weakness, and I accuse you of being a failure, of never coming through for your loved ones, of ruining your life, of being a deep, deep disappointment to me. Can you feel the shame of that? That God would see us And talk to us that way. And I wonder this morning, how many of us live as if God is our constant accuser? I have. I have lived this way. Like a whipped puppy. With guilt as my best friend, always there, always holding her hand. Wearing shame like the perfect Worn-in Saturday sweatshirt, never taking it off. Eating the soup of self-hatred, going back for seconds. Sitting in a stew of self-rejection like some kind of lukewarm hot tub of despair. I wrote that paragraph. I just want you to know it's my favorite paragraph I ever wrote. Thank you. (laughs) How could I write it so well? Because I've lived it. All because I assumed God was my accuser. But God is not my accuser. 
And God is not your accuser either. God is not your accuser. God is not your accuser, friends. The one who sees and knows the very worst you have to offer simply refuses to accuse you or point the finger of guilt at you. Because God himself has given you right standing with himself. God is not your accuser. Paul goes on, question four. Who then will condemn us? Who then will condemn us? Now Paul's, again, still in the courtroom. Because to condemn someone means to sentence them to punishment, usually death. And Paul is asking, again, this group of early Christians who were threatened with literal death every single day of their life, and he says to them, who then will sentence us to the death penalty? And Paul immediately answers in the same way he answered the last question, and he says, no one. And I love his reasoning for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can you just feel the drumbeat of what Paul's trying to get across? For us, for us, for us. God is for us. And so he asks, who will condemn you? Who will punish you? Not Jesus, the great judge of all mankind. No, he died for us. He was punished on our behalf. He defeated the ultimate punishment for our sin, which is death. And now, rather than existing to punish us, you know what he exists to do? Plead for us. This very moment, Jesus, with full access to his Father, is speaking good words to God on your behalf and on mine. So who then will condemn us? We will, Paul. We'll do it. We love us some self-condemnation, don't we, Christians? We love it. I used to have my PhD in self-condemnation. A little diploma. I graduated. I walked across the stage. I got honors. All because I spent so much of my day whispering these things in my own head. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. No wonder no one likes me. No wonder this bad thing is happening to me. God's punishing me, and I deserve it. I don't deserve to walk through those doors. Everybody can see it. I'm failing my life. I deserve to be lonely, to be sick, to be depressed, whatever it was. And when I was doing that, when I was hammering myself with guilt and condemnation, my assurance was simply in the wrong thing. My eyes were fixed on the wrong person. My focus was on the wrong set of actions. See, my assurance, your assurance, doesn't come from our own goodness. That's a fatal 
mistake. Because the actions that set me free from punishment are not mine, but God's. And over the years, I finally got it. I finally got the gospel. Stop looking at yourself. Start looking at the cross. Because of the cross, there's no more death penalty for you. There's no more condemnation. So stop condemning yourself. Because when you do that, you are rejecting the gospel. The cross stands as a reminder that God does not condemn you. So stop condemning yourself. Last question. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Now, two of the most common questions I get in my office here at this church when people come to talk with me are, one, does God love me? And two, if bad things happen in my life, doesn't that mean God no longer loves me? Does God really love me? And if bad stuff happens, doesn't that mean that God no longer loves me? And Paul knows. He knew back then and he knows today that you and I would find it easier to believe that God exists than we do to believe that God loves us. And so he asks this question, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? And then, because it wasn't okay just to ask the question and then answer it, he lists every hard thing that has ever happened to him since he started to follow the risen Jesus. And so he asks, does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble? You know what trouble means. Or calamity? Calamity means a disaster in your life. Or persecuted, meaning treated with hostility or violence. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we're hungry? And Paul's talking about real, life-threatening hunger, not just, I can't wait to leave here and go to high V. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. Or destitute, meaning without the basic necessities of life. Or in danger, meaning the threat of suffering injury or harm, or threatened with death, meaning real death, each of these things was very real to Paul and to the people he was preaching to. And he's asking, does it mean God no longer loves me if these things happen to me? And then he answers, no. There it is again, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us, meaning someday these things in our life that threaten to defeat us, someday those things will be vanquished and all of our hardships will be trumped by the glory that is to come. And Paul is not done yet. He continues in verse 38, and he says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, meaning nothing in the human experience. 
neither angels nor demons, meaning nothing in the spiritual realm, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, meaning nothing in time, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. What? On earth did he just write, meaning not even hell's power can keep us from God's love. Please hear that. Please hear that. All of you who are in here this morning, who have been told by some well-meaning or not so well-meaning religious person, hey, I know you're going to hell. Or any of you in here who follow Jesus, but you suffer from this absolutely neurotic fear of hell. Listen to Paul. I didn't even know this was in here until I worked through this verse by verse. Not even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love. Dude, that's big. He's not done. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, meaning nothing in space. Indeed, now he's covering his bases. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is Paul so confident about this? Because Paul knows that God's love is based on God and who God is and what God is like, and it is not based on us. Paul knew that God loves us because God loves us, period. And nothing, not even our own rejection of God's freely offered love, is enough to separate us from God's love. We need some of us to stop giving ourselves so much credit in this relationship, so much power. Oh, if I screw up, I'll be separated from God's love. If I don't do the right thing, God will reject me. If I don't go to church enough or pray the right prayer or vote the right way, blah, 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 blah. And Paul is trying to drive home the truth that there is nothing, not even death itself, the greatest dark power we know that can ever separate us from God's love. And my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that's true? And think carefully before you answer. Because how you answer that will make all the difference in the world to how you live out the rest of your days on this earth. Our confidence is never in the depth or the quality of our love for God, but only and always in God's unquenchable love for us. Isn't that good news? Who is against us? No one. And even if they are, it doesn't matter one whit because God is for us. Who will accuse us? Or point a finger at us? No one. And even if they do, even if I accuse myself, it doesn't matter one whit because God himself has made us right with himself. Who then will condemn us or punish us? No one. For Jesus could. But he died for us. He was raised to life for us. And he now pleads to the Father for us. Who or what can separate us from his love? No one. No thing. Nothing in the entire universe, not even death, not even hell, can separate us from God's love. 
And so I want you this morning, as you head into this holiday weekend, to walk out those doors and to live in this assurance. This is the gospel. This is the reason we come to church. Stop living scared. Stop living small. Don't live guilty or full of shame or self-condemnation. No, you live with courage. Live big. Live free in the assurance that the cross has brought into your life. You preach this gospel to yourself every day, and then you go be the gospel in this broken, dark, desperate world. God is for you. Who could ever be against you? Let's pray. And then we're going to sing. God, forgive us for making your gospel small and tight and mean and full of guilt. God, forgive us for putting so much emphasis on our own self, our own worthiness, our own works, the weight of our own ability to have faith. God, when all, all of our trust, all of our confidence, all of our vision should always be about you and who you are and what you've done and how much you love us and how much you hold tight to us despite our failures. God, remind us again through this powerful section of scripture that no matter how threatened or lost or lonely or sick or scared we feel, that you are for us, that you are not our enemy, that you are not our accuser, and that there is nothing that this world or the world to come can throw at us that will ever, ever, ever be able to separate us from the power of your love through Christ Jesus who did it all on our behalf. Amen.